Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Well, welcome back to another episode of um, Protect and Serve. And, you know, like I repeat, I repeat every episode. We are so privileged and honored to speak to people all over the world. And we've been to the US. um, We've been to Nepal. We've been to Australia. And now we're going to a place which is very close to my heart and just a stone's throw away from Australia. Because not only was it the place I got married, it's a place that I think is one of the most beautiful places in the world to visit and holiday, live is New Zealand and I'm incredibly honoured to be joined this evening, uh, his morning I might add, Saturday morning, by current Assistant Commissioner of the New Zealand Police, Bruce O'Brien. Bruce, welcome to the podcast, how are you this morning? Very good, thanks for having me on Ollie, I really appreciate it. No, 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 it's, you know, we are so lucky to be able to understand the challenges of policing globally and as I say, uh, having got married in Queenstown uh, in 2010, it's got a fond place in my heart and it's somewhere that I will be visiting again in the future, I can assure you. But we must move on. And like every good detective in my podcast, I like to start at the beginning of one's career. And my first question to you is why policing? Well, it's something that I'd always been interested in from a young child. Um, I think growing up, I was attracted to TV programs like Chips and The Bill. So I was a big fan from watching The Bill. Um, And as I sort of got a little bit older, um, my neighbour was a police officer. 
and I used to look up to him a lot. Um, he was always involved in school activities and camps and stuff like that. And when I was about 15, um, he offered to take me for a ride along one night uh, to see what it was like, the realities of it. And from that night on, I was really hooked. And I think the big thing that really drew me to policing was that the excitement about the job. Um, but, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think it holds true is you actually are doing a job that helps people. Um, you're a part of your community and actually giving something back to the community. So that was what really drew me to policing. So tell us about that first day of walking through the training college gates into this new, quite complex vocation in terms of where you're learning many different pieces of legislation, policy and procedure, having to regurgitate it verbatim often in weekly exams. How did you find that um, process from going from what we'll, what we'll describe as civilian life into this kind of policing world? Well, I was only, I just turned 20 when I went to the Royal New Zealand Police College um, based in Wellington. So we have one national college um, here in New Zealand. So walking in there as a 20 year old, um, you have those nerves as everybody does. But I found really quickly policing is, you find that it's like a big family really. And New Zealand police is no different. Um, So within a very short period of time, you're in a similar situation as everybody else. It's all new. There's a lot to take in, as you've sort of mentioned. Learning legislation was probably the big um, steep learning curve for me. I really enjoyed the the physical aspect and all the physical training. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really steep learning curve. I think the other thing is um, walking out of civilian life into a semi-hierarchical organisation as well was a bit of a, a change for me. I'd never been exposed to that, obviously, um, so, you know, there's, there's certain rules and back in those days, we were still doing marching every morning and parade every morning and all those type of things. So there's a lot to take in, but it was a really supportive environment um, and I loved every moment of it. We, we often reflect on the decision to go into policing and how that affects family networks, because, you know, it's, it's true of many scenarios that some family members or friends are pro-policing and some are actually a little bit cautious about that move and 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 sometimes that even jeopardizes friendships and can separate families a little bit how was the su- support structure from friends family mum dad siblings how was that transition well, I was really fortunate um I had a cousin in the police at the time um and he was extremely supportive as were my parents um I think I was really in, in part of my family. I was the first to go through. So there was always a lot of interest um, in what I was doing. Very um, supportive of such at a, such a young age going into the police. Um, yeah, so my friends were obviously a different stage of life, but overall extremely supportive. Um, were really always interested in work stories. So what was what was going on? And I think throughout my career, I've found people as soon as they get to speak to you and understand that you you know you're human like they are and um it breaks down those barriers around policing and i think people are genuinely interested in policing and and how police um, operate in their communities because i think a lot of the time people's views are created from television or that one bad experience that have had with a police officer or a friend's had with a police officer so i think once they actually speak to police officers in person, it can break those barriers down. And I think that's been my experience. So let's talk about your graduation. That must have been a very proud moment for you and your family in terms of being able to put those checkered stripes on your uniform and the epaulets on your shoulders and to march out of the Wellington Academy. It must have been a special day. Very special day. Um, I was very fortunate at that 
time to have my grandparents present, which was um, fantastic. Uh, one of my cousins um, was also there as well as my brother and sister and, and my parents. So it was a really fantastic day, not only to celebrate with them, but all those people that you've come through the academy with um, in the previous five or six months. Um, it was great. And it's a day that I'll always remember. Just very quickly, as as a side question, this in terms of the training at the academy, is there any sort of education or kind of community awareness around the you know the the strength of the Maori culture and and how it's embraced by policing in New Zealand during that training phase? Yes, there is. Um, so one of the New Zealand police values um, is our commitment to Maori and the Treaty of Waitangi. So right from day one, um, our values are intertwined right across our learning curriculum and the way that we use our powers, be it search powers or use of force. So it's a really big part of the curriculum, um, but it's also a really big part of way of life in New Zealand as well. We're a multicultural society um, and our Indigenous um, people are extremely important to this country. And uh, I think it's why we've got such good relationships here in New Zealand um, because of the Treaty of Waitangi being our founding document for our country. And it's something that uh, everybody is aware of and um, is a really treasured document in New Zealand. It's a fantastic insight because, you know, my experience in, in, in Australia working within Indigenous communities in the outback, there's always been a very strained and ch strained and challenged relationship historically in terms of working with communities in Australia you do the in, in terms of Queensland particularly where I was working in South Australia often very challenging and I think often if you look at the the New, the, New, the New Zealand model of embracing the culture and very much living it and, and reflecting on the histories of the indigenous people it's a remarkable story and it's been such a success over many many years so I really really do find it insightful as to the kind of those successes but I wanted to kind of step into your first exposures on patrol in uh, Wangari in, in Auckland as a response constable. When you step out onto the road in general duties, when was kind of as a young 20-year-old young man, when do you realise that policing is going to offer you significant challenges, both emotionally and physical, dealing with domestic violence incidents, sudden death, road trauma? How are those first years of experience for you? I think nothing really prepares you for the realities of policing. And I think you've got to balance that with the fact that those bad days um, are in the minority. Um, I do think things have changed significantly in the way that we look after each other. So I'm talking from a mental health perspective, because when I joined some 23 years ago, uh, there probably wasn't the awareness that there is now around looking after yourself not only physically, but mentally as well. And I'd say it was much like the UK um, sort of 20 odd years ago. When you did have a bad day, a lot of the way that people would deal with it would be back humour, obviously. Um, but alcohol was probably the way that a lot of people coped with a hard day, be it a bad domestic violence incident that you've attended or a fatal road crash. Um, alcohol seemed to be the go-to um, option. I think we've matured and we probably understand a lot more around how we are to, I suppose, ask for help when we are exposed to a traumatic event, that it's okay. The stigma around mental health, I think, has been um, completely removed, which is a really good thing. And I think it's really healthy for um, the policing 
profession. So here in New Zealand, and, I, and I'm picking, it's, it's the same in other jurisdictions as well. We put a really big emphasis on people's mental health. We have debriefs after traumatic um, incidents. Um, we look at healthy ways of dealing with uh, mental health issues, um, such as speaking to counsellors, um, you know, putting people in, in contact with other people that may have been exposed to similar traumatic events previously and how they've coped. So there's a range of different mechanisms now and wellness is a really big focus for us here in New Zealand. So it's really changed a lot, but I don't think anything really prepares you for the realities of policing. And, and, it, and it, it takes a lot of people by surprise, I think, once you're actually out there in the front line. During that period of 2000 to 2009, whilst you're working in that area of Auckland, um, you stepped into the tactical support group, which is you know, predominantly public order policing. How did you find that? Was that a natural gravitation? Did you enjoy the more sort of physical type of policing? Was that an area of interest for you? Um, what really attracted me was the teamwork aspect. So um, a tactical support group here in Auckland um, had a really big focus on uh, physical well-being. So we did a lot of training um, before we went out and worked, um, a lot of training around um, tactical um, skills, which really enhanced the way that you could de-escalate situations, I think, a lot better than when you were just in the in the response car. But I was also attracted to the type of work that we used to do. So policing, obviously, big um, sporting events, concerts, um, protest uh, around Auckland and other parts of the country. Uh, but it was the teamwork that I really enjoyed, uh, the camaraderie ship that you would build with your, uh, we had teams of six that was led by a sergeant. So that was that was fantastic and made lifelong friends. I'm still in contact with a lot of people I worked with, you know, 20 odd years ago in, in that team. So I was really, really um, drawn to that part of policing, um, especially when you're young and you're, and you're more than happy to work you know, those crazy long shifts on weekends and stuff like that. So it was, it was a really interesting and fantastic part of my career. And then on the flip side of that, going to the other end of the spectrum, you've got this exposure to rural policing, which is a totally different type of policing in the sense of Im- kind of immersing yourself into the community even more and not only sometimes being a friend, but also having that relationship that you can also police the community that you're often residing in. That must have been quite an interesting step in in your policing career. Yeah, really different from city policing. Uh, um, you really have to work hard to gain the trust of the community, um, especially in small rural um, areas of New Zealand where, you know, the population might only be a couple of thousand people. So everybody knows everybody. Everybody's interested in who the local cop is. So you've got to build that trust but you've also got to be um, policed very fairly and firmly Um, I used to find that the community would always support you there was only a couple of occasions where because you were working by yourself um, you might be dealing with an arrest that wasn't um, the person wasn't being very compliant and on both of those occasions the community would step in and and gave me a hand Um, it was really interesting in understanding some of those community dynamics as well Um, understanding who in the community that you could go to when things needed to be resolved at a community level. So identifying your community leaders early on and, and again, building trust with them, but working with them was really important. But I thoroughly enjoyed it, um, but I'm a, I'm a city cop at heart. So um, after that, I obviously went back went back into city policing again. So we let's move back into that environment of South, South Auckland, which um, I, I've had the... 
the luxury and the privilege of working with some fantastic New Zealand police officers that have come over to Queensland and South Australia and have continued on their policing careers. And they always looked back on South Auckland as probably one of the more challenging areas of New Zealand to police in. Could you just talk us through some of those issues that you generally face in that area? Yeah, so South Auckland um, is a large has a large proper population of Auckland's total population. Um, it's a fantastic place um, to not only work, um, but there's some really fantastic um, New Zealand uh, leaders that have come out of that area as well it certainly has its challenges a lot of our sporting stars and a lot of our all blacks um, have grown up in south auckland some of the challenges um it's got a lot of uh complex social issues uh that obviously then create challenges for policing um and i'm talking about high levels of family violence uh in south auckland um we have uh, a large youth population in South Auckland as well. So obviously that translates into um, more challenges around youth crime. But one of the things that I really found in South Auckland, I, I policed it for 10 years at, um, in different ranks and, and levels, was the community uh, are really supportive of police and what police are trying to um, do to help communities there. Uh, the communities would always have really good solutions for community problems. And I think that was probably the first part of my, the first time in my career where I, where I realised that police don't always have the solutions in our toolbox. And most of the time, uh, the communities will have solutions for community-based problems. So I really enjoyed um, one of my roles when I was the area prevention manager in, in a part of South Auckland is coming up with solutions with the community for this for the community and i i used to find they had the best results um in reducing crime and harm uh but yeah it is a it's a really challenging part of um new zealand to police um but i think sometimes it gets a bad rap which is um not justified there's a, the vast vast majority of people that are there are um great people that want the best for their community and only willing to help police to achieve that so policing in South Auckland at the rank of sergeant, what were the first sort of initial challenges that you had moving through that initial, those initial ranks and looking after now teams of constables and senior constables under your command? I think one of the big things that you learn really quickly is how reliant um, your people are on you. Um, and I still think that the sergeant rank is the most important and most influential in any police service. You set the culture, you, you set the... Um, style of policing um, that is done. So for me, it's a really big learning curve um, from going from one of the constables um, seeking that advice and guidance to actually being the person that um, is providing it. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it's a, probably the biggest step in leadership that I've taken in any other rank. Um, and I, as I say, I still think it's one of the most important. Was that after you'd got that taste at the rank of sergeant, was it then your aspirations to achieve to the rank that you have to today at the rank of assistant commissioner, or was it just you just naturally seem to progress? No, it wasn't. Um, what probably um, gave me, I suppose, that first exposure was I was given the opportunity to relieve as a senior sergeant, which is for those UK listeners is the equivalent of a as an inspector, um, and. I really enjoyed, uh, I suppose, leading teams rather than a team. Uh, 
So I kept putting my hand up for those opportunities when they presented themselves. And there was short relieving stints of sort of three or four weeks here and there. And about a year later, uh, an opportunity came up to apply for a senior sergeant's position, a permanent role, and um, I was successful in that. Um, and I was in that role for a, for about two years. And then uh, a inspector's role in New Zealand, which is the first commissioned uh, officer level, was um, available. Again, took the opportunity. And I think that's probably been the way of sort of progressed is when opportunities have presented themselves, I've really never said no. Um, taking myself out of my comfort zone is what I enjoy doing. Um, and I, I've really enjoyed every opportunity I've been given and fortunately uh, ended up at the current rank I'm at now. Let's talk about briefly this policing advisory role to the Royal Solomon Islands Police. I've had the um, great honour of working on the island of Nauru uh, in in an, in an offshore immigration investigational capacity. But so I've had exposure to the Nauruan police and the kind of the capabilities and work with the AFP. Your time in the Royal Solomon Islands Police must have been a huge eye opener. Oh, it was a fantastic opportunity, and you're right, it was an eye-opener. Um, so I went to the Solomon Islands back in 2011. Um, so the, a bit of history with the Solomon Islands, they had a lot of civil unrest in the early 2000s, and a regional assistant mission uh, led by Australia was formed, um, which had components of um, New Zealand representation, both our Defence Force and Police and some of our Pacific Island neighbours um, also came to assist. And my role was over there was an advisor to um, a member of the Solomon Islands Police Executive um, that was running Honiara City. Uh, so it was an opportunity for me to share experiences from a New Zealand police perspective, but better understand some of the challenges that they were having in the Solomons. And I really enjoyed every moment of it. Um, the Solomon Islands people are the most um, fantastic, hospitable people that um, I've worked with, uh, always wanting to help you understand their challenges and their culture, but really open to learning new things. And the six months that I spent there were uh, great. I remember it fondly, um, but there were challenges there. Uh, a lot of deprivation in the Solomon Islands, um, Rebuilding your country after significant civil unrest is not easy as well. Uh, so there was a lot of work to do there. There still is work um, underway in the Solomons, but a fantastic country to visit. And then you've got this role as the senior sergeant of International Airport Policing Commander. Now, our airport infrastructures are critical piece of infrastructure in terms of you know tourists coming in you've got freight coming in you've got thousands of passengers processed through coming through the borders what's that airport experience like what 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 value add do you bring in terms of the policing of that of that area yeah so i was fortunate enough to lead auckland international police um airport police probably one of the differences is you're working in a very commercial environment so the airport has certain targets that they have to meet around turning planes around so for instance if you do have an issue with a passenger or um, there's a there's a threat to an aircraft or something like that it's those commercial aspects that you've also got to think about that are playing out in the background which you probably don't necessarily think about when you're policing in a city center 
So multi-agency working is another really big thing that you have to consider and, and, and be part of when you're working in the airport um, community. There's a lot of other agencies, both government and non-government, that make the airport run. Uh, so every decision that you take from a policing perspective uh, will have consequences on other parts of the airport operation. So that was probably the first thing that really uh, was a learning curve for me. Um, you got to do some fantastic things. We used to have VIPs coming through the airport, um, both uh, world leaders. Um, you know, you'd, you'd facilitate other VIPs through. So that security aspect was really a new part of policing that I hadn't been exposed to, which was was fantastic. Um, but a lot of the policing in an international airport is very similar um, to your wider community. There's still family violence incidents happening. There's still theft happening. Uh, still vehicle cra crashes happening on roads around the airport. So policing's policing, but um, there's a different dynamic, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And during those um, that deployment into that particular area of policing, are you continuing on with your studies? Have you got your sights set on other areas of the police that you'd like to explore and progress through? So I'm currently um, doing a PhD on uh, child abuse, focusing primarily on New Zealand and sort of goes back to my South Auckland days uh, when I was working there. I was exposed to high rates of not only family violence, but um, child abuse as well, uh, which unfortunately is not unique to South Auckland. It's um, replicated across different parts of New Zealand and Unfortunately, we're, we've got really high statistics um, on child abuse in this country. So it's always been um, an interest of mine to better understand the causes of this child abuse and why we have such high rates. And some of it can be answered through deprivation and, and, and things like poverty. But uh, I really want to understand how we can better predict risk on those that are more likely to harm children than those that are not. So the, the study that I'm currently looking at is trying to understand uh, risk factors um, in a predictive model. Uh, and I'm hoping that there'll be some insights that could be translated into the operational world so that we can better understand, um, better predict those at more at risk of harming children. And then obviously putting prevention around those families um, to protect children because our current rates of child abuse uh, in New Zealand are completely unacceptable and I really want to do what I can to reduce those. It's an incredible feat to study a doctorate whilst also managing the portfolio that you do. And what I wanted to ask you was in terms of managing your own personal challenges, when you're investigating high levels of, of child abuse, it's quite confronting work. How do you deal with and manage what you're seeing day in day out do you compartmentalize it how do you remove yourself personally and emotionally from those often quite challenging investigations well i think the first thing is um all police when we are confronted with these um traumatic situations we do sort of go into our police mode and you know um we deal with what's in front of us and we, we do it professionally and um, we get the job done. But I think we're all human and, and when we do leave those situations, you can't help um, but be affected by them. And uh, as I say, my time um, attending some of these really um, traumatic events 
did leave um, a mark on me and an impression on me, and which is I, which is really what drove me to better want to better understand what was sitting in behind it, because our most vulnerable uh, people in our society are our children and our and our elderly. But um, when you're looking at the harm that some of our children have have had on them, um, it's just completely unacceptable. So that's why I really wanted to move into this field of study. It's not easy. Um, even now doing the PhD and you're reading, you know, case files from both here in New Zealand and overseas, um, you certainly do have to uh, take time away from it. Um, focus mm. again on your mental health through, you know, exercise. For me, it's exercise is um, how I sort of keep myself healthy. Um, but yeah, it's it's a confronting topic, but it's it's one that's extremely important. Your position as area commander for prevention manager between 2014-2019, sorry, you're responsible for aerial, area level policing and response and investigation staff in one of Auckland's three districts, and you're responsible for crime prevention and investigations, quite large portfolios to oversee. In policing and in investigation terms, we talk about conflicting priorities, you know, kind of what is important now. When you're overseeing such large portfolios, how do you prioritise what is important to you right at that moment? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I think um, police services and around the world grapple with this at times. Uh, for us here in New Zealand, we've got um, a deployment model and we use um, a process called strategic task and coordination, which will be similar to, that, to other jurisdictions. But fundamentally, we look at all our critical command information, be it intelligence, um, current demand. We look at our resources uh, and then we make decisions about where we are going to put our resources um, to have the best impact on reducing crime and, and harm. One of the things that uh, I've been a big advocate for here in New Zealand is the Crime Harm Index, uh, which was developed uh, from the University of Cambridge. The original one was the Cambridge Crime Harm Index. We've got a New Zealand Crime Harm Index, and fundamentally you can use that to focus on your most harmful offenders, um, your most victimised victims, and your most problematic locations. Um, and we, we're really working hard in New Zealand to uh, bring the Crime Harm Index into a lot of our deployment practices, uh, because policing, we only have finite resources, so you've got to make best use of them. So. I used a little bit of the Crime Harm Index, but our, our deployment model here in New Zealand is very sound. And um, But it's not always easy because you do have emerging risks as well that pop up um, and you've got to move resources around, but that's just the nature of policing. And equally, just wanting to add an extra layer of complexity to the policing in New Zealand, you're talking about a very large country spread over what is in effect two very large islands. How do you understand where resources need to be directed i assume obviously population has a massive effect in terms of numbers and crime trends but you know there are some areas of new zealand which are incredibly remote and provide different challenges for instance the mountain ranges down in queenstown you know to the city urban life up in auckland you know is, is there a, is there a lot of research that goes into kind of where you need to deploy resources or is it a case if you do get spot fires, particularly maybe in Queenstown with an extra level of with more people down there because tourism's on the rise, you fly staff in? How does that kind of work? 
Yeah, so we replicate um, the area and district deployment model at a national level. So we have strategic tasking coordination every month um, where our senior leaders of our organisation meet. And again, we, we consider all the insights and, and data around where crime's happening and then make decisions. Um, a lot of it is also area-level knowledge as well, which is extremely important because um, at an area level, you know who is you know, maybe committing crime at that time. Uh, you know who is most vulnerable and needs protection at an area level, which at a national level, you don't get to see. Um, so it's a combination of both. And we're fortunate in New Zealand that we are a national service as well. So, you know, we're geographically, I think we're a little bit bigger than uh, England and Wales, but obviously we don't have the population of, of the UK. So our population is quite um, condensed to our big three main cities, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, and then obviously we've got provincial um cities and locations around the country and then as you've quite rightly touched on we do have very small populations dotted around the country as well so all of those need different policing responses um as i say area led um but supported nationally is is the model that we have here in nz i wanted to touch on a period in new zealand's history which is probably one of the most tragic events of the last decade and I think lends itself in terms of the view of terrorism and often we we wrongly label one particular cohort as being potentially responsible for terrorist incidents where if you look historically at the moment one of the significant growing trends or concerns is, is far-right terrorism and I suppose I'm obviously talking about the tragic incident on the 15th of March 2019 when 51 people lost their lives in the Christchurch mosque shootings. It was a massacre that changed a country. This uh, is and will be one of New Zealand's darkest days. Brenton Tarrant opened fire at two mosques in Christchurch, killing 51 people. It's just an animal. This guy's an animal. The attack was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in New Zealand's history. How do you plead? Guilty. But who is this extremist? And what happened in those 19 minutes of terror? Just after half past one in the afternoon on March the 15th, 2019, Brenton Tarrant starts live streaming on Facebook from his car. He's dressed in a paramilitary-style uniform and armed with semi-automatic weapons. He is about to broadcast a terror attack to the world. Tarrant drives towards Al Noor Mosque. Around 1.40, he enters the place of worship and opens fire, indiscriminately shooting men, women and children. The attack lasts six minutes. In that time, he murders more than 40 people. At 1.47, armed police arrive on the scene, but Tarrant is gone. He's already started to drive towards Linwood Islamic Center. This is where his Facebook Live cuts out. At 1.52, he arrives at Linwood. He shoots two people outside the mosque before making his way inside. We just started prayer when I had I've never been to the war. I've never, you know, 
I've never used a weapon in my life. But I knew this is not normal. And I saw that coward come back from the back of his car and uh, when I asked him who the hell are you, he started shooting at me and I was screaming, yelling at him, come I'm here because I didn't want him to come inside the mosque because we had a lot of people, between 80 to 200 people was praying that day. And uh, I wanted him to focus on me, but uh, unfortunately he came inside and shot a lot of brothers and sisters and he dropped his gun and ran to his car. Uh, then I chased him to his car when he sat on his car because we had a bit of distance. He just looked at me and he just gave me a finger and said, I killed all of you. At 1.55, Tarrant leaves Linwood Mosque. Seven people died at the scene, two more later in hospital. At 1.57, his car is seen by a police unit. They start to pursue him. Two minutes later, they stop the car and arrest Brenton Tarrant. His 19-minute attack stole 51 lives. Tarrant published a 74-page hate-filled manifesto prior to the murders. He emailed it to leading politicians, including the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, just minutes before the shooting began. The people who were um, uh, the subject of this attack today, New Zealand is their home. They should be safe here. The person who has perpetuated this violent act against them, uh, they have no place in New Zealand society. More than 1,400 miles away from Christchurch, this is where Brenton Tarrant grew up. Grafton is a city of around 19,000 people in New South Wales, Australia. Family and friends report remembering him playing a lot of violent video games when he was younger and having trouble with women. Are you able to talk us through that particular incident and the implications and the effect it had on New Zealanders? Yeah, and as, as you quite rightly pointed out, it's probably um, one of not the most tragic event that we've had in this country. Um, I, I remember the day um, vividly. I was I was actually working out of Auckland that day, and at that time I was a superintendent um, responsible for the evidence-based policing centre. Um, and I remember uh, my phone ringing and advising me of this event that was unfolding in Christchurch and the magnitude of it um, wasn't really understood until later that evening and as you as you say it, it completely rocked all New Zealanders um, not just the community that was directly affected but all New Zealanders were deeply saddened um, I think we're all shocked that this had occurred in New Zealand um, we certainly had never had anything like this occur before um, and we used to always look on at you know events overseas and you know our sympathies went out to those different parts of the world that were suffering these type of events but never did any of us think that anything like this would happen here so it was a shocking event and as you say 51 people lost their lives another 40 were seriously injured um, in those two mosques that were attacked um, I suppose some of the things that come out of that day um, was how important community policing is. Um, the response that we put in place post that event was very community orientated, um, not only working with the community that were involved, but the wider community, um, providing that reassurance. Um, we're a genuinely um, unarmed police service um, for a period of time. Uh, our police staff were armed. Uh, I think it was about five or six weeks. So 
that was something um, that the New Zealand public weren't used to seeing. So having to provide that reassurance around why that was required and why that was necessary. Um, the, the bravery that was shown on the day by a number of st um, police staff, um, not only the two officers that arrested the terrorist a very short time after the incidents that had occurred, but the people within the mosques that provided first aid um, to friends and loved ones, um, our police staff and first responders from uh, St. John Ambulance that went in to provide first aid. There was a lot of heroism that went on that day, but it's an event um, that will be in our minds forever, I think. Um, it's something that we always mark on the anniversary and uh, it's something we would never want to see again um, occur here in New Zealand. Brenton Tarrant's attack did change New Zealand, but not in the way he wanted. Come on! The country was devastated by the shootings, so much so that a ban on military-style semi-automatic weapons was announced just six days after the attack. Our gun laws will change. Now is the time for change. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Guilty. Tarrant pleaded guilty to 51 charges of murder, 40 charges of attempted murder, and admitted committing a terrorist act. It's illegal to show any of his Facebook live stream or publish his manifesto. New Zealand is determined not to allow his ideas to spread. But for survivors, the memory of the shootings will be with them forever. It's not something you can forget. I don't think not a single day. I will not feel the depth of the agony you know, we went through that day. Because crime? No, I don't condone it. But as a person, I'm prepared to forgive him. Right on. As a human being, I will forgive him. If he's guilty, Allah will punish him. I'm just human. I'm no one to punish him. It's not something that I think New Zealanders would ever think could happen within a country as often quite quiet you, you you very rarely hear any news coming out of new zealand in terms of problems political or otherwise do you think it, it brought to the fore the fact that terrorism doesn't discriminate it can occur anywhere and that people need to be continually alert to things that are abnormal or people that behave out of the ordinary you know if you see it and report it yeah i think that's a really good summary it's it certainly brought into um, reality, I think, for New Zealanders that we are part of a global village. And as you say, um, New Zealand is sometimes, you know, we're bottom of the bottom of the world. Not a lot of news comes out of here, but it certainly, I think, um, brought to the fact that we are part of a global village. Terrorism, as you say, is indiscriminate. Um, it, it has a global reach, and that's why it's so vitally important that we are on the lookout uh, and we've got the right processes in place to identify uh, it before it occurs so we can prevent these type of incidents from happening. And that's why I think that community policing model is so important that all spectrums of the community um, have trust in police 
to raise issues where they've got concerns about an individual or a group of people that they feel that they have the trust to come and speak to us um, so that we can um, understand what that issue is and um, take the appropriate action depending on whatever the, the threat may be. Do you think one of the greatest strengths of New Zealanders and, and the communities is the fact that when an incident like this occurs and it's never happened before but equally it appears to me that New Zealanders are very quick to wrap their arms around communities that are vulnerable to give them reassurance and to work with them to make sure problems never occur and to give them a sense of you know it, we are one community it's not there are different cohorts of ethnicity and different groups of people we are one New Zealand it seems to be an incredibly strong characterization of the country that's very big on community embracement. Yeah, it's, it's part of our national psyche. Um, we embrace everybody as New Zealanders. Um, doesn't matter uh, where you've come from in the world. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a new migrant to New Zealand, um, you're a part of New Zealand, you're a Kiwi. And I think that really played out post uh, these two attacks that the community wrapped their arms around the community that had been affected um, and probably um, better understood some of our smaller communities as well that we may not have had um, as much understanding of some of the challenges that they were facing. Um, a little bit more compassion and understanding as well um, about those issues. So an absolute tragic event, uh, but I think there has been um, some good um, things that have come post the event um, to provide that assurance to small communities that we will do everything we can to prevent anything like this from ever occurring again. Moved up into the uh, rank of assistant commissioner in national role. You're overseeing national intelligence. You're overseeing evidence-based policing. You're overseeing, I believe, national deployment and national roads policing. The rank of assistant commissioner is not a small one. It's part of the executive team that helps drive strategy and drives the New Zealand police into the future. What are some of the what are some of your greatest challenges when you sit behind your desk? You you must often pinch yourself to I suppose often think where you've come from and that you've obtained such, you know, a great level of policing and you're able to make such broad positive impacts across the service. What are your biggest challenges day in, day out? Uh, I think probably the first thing is there's not enough hours in the day. Um <laughs> there is a, a, yeah, there's a lot to get get through. Um so my portfolio, as you say, I've got intelligence, I've got evidence-based policing, I've got deployment. So that's the strategic task and coordination and our national critical command center. And I've also got road policing as well. So four big portfolios all come with um, challenges. I'm really fortunate that uh, the superintendents that lead each of those part of the business are extremely capable, fantastic leaders themselves who drive the day-to-day -day business um, for me. Um, so I'm very fortunate in that respect. Probably um, building that time in your day to actually think strategically. Um, what are you going to be doing in the next three, six, 12 months time, rather than uh, a lot of the time getting caught up with the daily churn? Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've got to, I, I really am deliberate about is getting myself out of the day-to-day tune -day and, and actually thinking strategically. And that's not always easy because there is always an emerging issue or risk or 
challenge that has to be dealt with in the here and now. Um, but I'm very fortunate. I, I've, the, the job itself is very rewarding, um, extremely varied, uh, and I feel very privileged um, to have that role um, within our police service. Do you get many opportunities? You've got a lot of operational experience behind you, but you know quite often it's important to still understand the challenges that are going on on the ground. Do you often get the opportunity to throw the accoutrement belt back on and the vest on to get out there and still understand what those challenges are today? Probably not as much as I would like to. Uh, um, so over this holiday period that we're just, we're just going through here in um, New Zealand, uh, I've been covering um, as one of the exec on call. So during this period in time, I've, I've been out a little bit more. Um, and it's something that I've, I, I try and be more deliberate about and get out and about because I think it's really important that um, you know, strategic leaders understand what frontline policing uh, is still like. Um, it has changed since I was on the front line. There's a whole lot of different complexities now for our officers to work through. Uh, there's a lot more scrutiny on policing as well. Uh, so I find being connected to your frontline is extremely important for you to understand what the business is facing, um, those challenges. And I also, you know, I really think back to my time when I was on the street, having a strategic leader come out, um, actually want to understand what it's like, what's going on is really important. And I think that instills confidence in our frontline as well that executive members actually do understand what what's going on uh, if they have got problems they can raise them and you'll do your best to resolve those problems be it equipment or a, a policy challenge or whatever that whatever's making their day-to-day -day job more difficult than it needs to be uh, I think that connectivity is really important so it's something that I still really enjoy doing uh, Sometimes I feel like I'm probably a bit of a liability up there. Um, uh, you sort of, it's like riding a bike. You can always ride a bike, but um, you you are a little bit rusty. And uh, I certainly look at our our frontline staff now and uh, really appreciate what they do um, because it's it is a really complex role now, policing. One of the challenges for executive uh, staff within policing is is often managing um, the expectations of politicians both locally and federally um, and one of the the key aspects of of any sort of re-election or election campaign is you know, o often a handful of areas of policy which can have governments in answering questions and one of those is is, is law enforcement it's crime how, how what are, are there challenges as executive officer managing the expectations of politicians in terms of capabilities what you can achieve the resources you have and the budgets you're given i think policing um is always political. Um, and as you say, law and order um, is usually an, an election issue. Um, doesn't matter where in the world you are, it's in the election cycle, law and order is always something that seems to crop up. I think the big thing is um, that operational independence needs to be maintained. Um, and uh, understanding that, um, you know, government policies and, and strategies need to be implemented at um, and and police play our part in that, but I think that operational independence is extremely important. Um, it also ensures that uh, we can get on with what we need to do to keep communities safe. Um, but also understanding, you know, if it's re a reducing crime target, um, that we play our part 
in in the wider system and in, in achieving that. Um, but it is it is it is a fine line that has to be walked. Um, and I don't think it's just policing. I think other, especially um, other agencies in the criminal justice realm, uh, have to walk as well. Um, so yeah, I, I you know in my role I. I uh, work with our ministerial services on a regular basis because one of my roles is looking after um, and being the custodian of police data. Um, so crime statistics obviously become very topical both politically and in the media. Um, so it's it's about providing the best advice to your minister to allow them to do their job well. Um, but it's also, as I say, it's, it's maintaining that uh, operational independence that policing needs. New Zealand uh, is like no other country in terms of facing challenges, you know, increase in energy bills and other areas of people's lives. I suppose New Zealand has the extra challenge of trying to replace Kane Williamson, the New Zealand captain who's standing down. <laughs> One significant challenge. But, but just wanting to understand from your perspective, what are the challenges in the next five to ten years for New Zealand police? Well, I think we, we know um, different around cost of living and as you say that's going to have it's going to have an impact on a lot of families across New Zealand um, and that could play out both in a family violence situation it may increase um, volume crime such as burglary or car theft those type of crime types and you may also see uh, mental health calls for service um, increase as well so I think that's that's one component of it. A couple of things that um, I was recently in a conference in Australia and we were talking about what was what was sort of coming over the hill for Australian and New Zealand jurisdictions. And it's a couple of big topics. Um, I think the first is uh, recruitment and retention of police staff. So I don't think mm. we're immune to any other places around the world at the moment of um, recruiting good quality police officers, but retaining um the skills, knowledge and experience in your current officers. Um, again, you see that being played out in other professions such as nursing as well. Uh, so there's a couple of jurisdictions in Australia at the moment that are doing big recruiting drives. I think Western Australia is one that's attracted quite a few recruit uh, recruitment sort of uh, interests from the UK especially. So that's going to be one thing that we're going to have to manage is how we uh, support each other um, in that because there's no point um, you know one one agency losing a whole lot of staff to another and that agency facing those challenges so it's about I think working closer together the second big topic I think is um, the use of technology uh, uh, so everything is virtually a digital world now um, so how are policing going to respond to that I was quite surprised and intrigued um, by the metaverse. We had a presentation on the metaverse recently. It was something that I hadn't really had a lot of exposure to, but understanding how police will respond um, to digital crime, be it cyber, be it extortion online, be it fraud, um, that's going to be a big demand for police services globally. So how are we going to respond to that? Is police even the best agency to deal with that? Those type of questions, I think, will have to be uh, worked through uh, and answered because the public will expect uh, a response if they have been victimised online, and quite rightly so. I see um, there's predictions already that more people will be victimised online than, than traditional crime types such as burglary and 
car crime. So there will be an expectation on police um, to be able to respond. So I think there, there is a couple of big things that um, we will have to focus on. Uh, the third thing probably for me um, for policing is building the right leadership pipeline um, for police. Policing has changed a lot in the last decade. Um, there's a lot more expectation on police leaders to deal with more complex crime problems. Um, we've touched on terrorism already, so that's obviously a global challenge that leaders will need to be able to understand and respond to. You've got your digital crime. Um, and then obviously, as we move post COVID um, and potentially into a global recession, these traditional crime types that we're used to, they could certainly increase. So how will police deal with those? And I think the other big piece for leaders um, is police legitimacy. So the model of new policing in New Zealand is policing by consent, like the UK. Um, so how do we maintain that trust and confidence of all our communities, um, maintaining legitimacy, but also policing? And we, we know that policing at times is not the easiest job and you have to make really hard decisions sometimes in a split second um, and they can be really difficult especially when it comes to um, search stop and search or use of force so they're really big topics um, for leaders to get across and, and to continually support and develop those leaders. One of the other challenges that I wonder whether New Zealand police grapples with as much as any other force is just ensuring that police services and the hierarchical structure of police services is reflective of the communities they're policing. Is that something that the New Zealand police continue to work towards improving or do you think you're at a good level? I think there's always work to be done and I think it's extremely important that um, you do represent your community and um, sort of goes back to my earlier point around community solutions for community problems. So here in New Zealand, unfortunately, our Māori population are overrepresented in our criminal justice system. So they make up approximately about 17% of our general population. But when it comes to our prison population, um, our Māori population make up about 51%, so completely overrepresented. So there's a number of bits of work across our justice system to better understand and respond to that. Um, one of the parts that New Zealand police are playing is a program of work called Understanding Policing Delivery. So we're looking at three areas um, to understand if there is bias in our policy practice or training, focusing on three key areas of policing, which is um, who and how we stop um, people and engage with them. So primarily looking at stop and search uh, and vehicle stops. The second part is um, use of force. Um, that's uh, primarily because again, our Maori population are overrepresented in our use of force statistics. And the third part is charging decisions. So understanding uh, how officers use discretion. Um, we have a program of work here in New Zealand around supported resolution. So looking at restorative justice as one avenue to resolve um, harm that's committed by a perpetrator against a victim. So that's one avenue. We also have, um, you know, verbal warnings, uh, formal warnings, um, and then obviously prosecution is um, another avenue. So it's better understanding about 
the way that we respond to individuals rather than, you know, sort of a, a blanket approach um, that individual circumstances, both the perpetrator and the victim to get the best outcome for the victim and the perpetrator to, to try and prevent um, uh, reoffending from occurring. So that's a large piece of work. Um, we've ensured that we've had a community voice in that program of work. So it's, there's a independent panel uh, chaired by a, um, a well-known justice advocate in New Zealand, um, Sir Kim Workman, who that panel um, is made up of academics, community leaders, um, and uh, well-respected Maori elders who can provide, uh, I suppose, an objective eye outside of police about some of our practices, provide advice, uh, guidance on some of our practices where there may be bias, um, so as we progress, we'll understand where bias may exist. But equally important is we've got an operational advisory group um, that is made up of primarily constables, sergeants and detectives um, that can provide that balance um, because we know that policing is not straightforward. And, you know, policing at two o'clock in the morning can be quite challenging, um, especially when people are affected by alcohol or drugs. So having that operational voice, I suppose, to provide the balance um, to ensure that we get the, boast of, the best of both um, pieces of advice, be it academic um, from research or actually our frontline staff saying, actually, this policy here is not fit for purpose anymore and is contributing to worse outcomes. So it's a fantastic piece of work. I think it's going to be um, not only interesting for from a New Zealand perspective, but um, I think there'll be learnings for other jurisdictions as we progress. Uh, on a personal level, there are six positions in the, I suppose, the ultimate executive leadership teams. Will we see your name in one of those positions in the future? Look, I'm really happy with where I'm at at the moment, Ollie. Um, as I say, there's not enough hours in my day um, currently. <laughs> um, I sort of... Uh, wonder how my boss does it um, day to day as well, because they've got extremely big portfolio. So look, I'm really happy with where I'm at at the moment. Um, I'm still extremely passionate about policing. Um, I think it's a fantastic role. Uh, and I think you can contribute to policing. You don't necessarily need to be in, um, in, a, in a uniform. I, I look at some of um, our partners, both non-government non and um, government that contribute to what we do. And um, so I think it's a fantastic profession. And uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm really happy with where I'm at. Well, the last hour has been a fantastic insight into your career in policing thus far. It's still going and, and it's, uh, I'm sure there's more to come. I'm excited to watch your progress and more excited to see the developments in your doctorate studies that you're doing. I think that'll be such a turning point and probably a milestone moment in terms of you being able to provide that really sort of expert insight as to how negative impacts on child abuse and where it comes from and ultimately how can you improve the preventative measures to minimize it and to ensure that you better understand it so i think what a marvelous piece of work that you're doing outside of policing um, listen, thank you ever so much uh, for your service on behalf of my colleagues and I here at the Protect and Serve podcast. We wish you the best of luck and we wish you all the best in your future endeavours in policing. And uh, thank you again for coming on the show. 
Well, no, thank you, um, Ollie. It's been a privilege to come and talk about um, what I've been doing, but more importantly, what New Zealand police have been doing to keep New Zealand communities safe. So um, thank you very much, and I really appreciate the opportunity. No, thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.